0: Hello everyone, this is Rico, and today we're going to do a special interview for the podcast, for podcast number 488, for May the 18th, 2014, here on Treks in Sci-Fi. I'll be interviewing author Mark Cushman, who has written a couple of volumes on the making of the original Star Trek series, called These Are the Voyages, Volumes 1 and 2, out now. Volume 3 will be out uh, later this year. And uh, stay tuned for that interview coming up next here on Treks in Sci-Fi.
1: I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. We welcome now to...
0: I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life! My name is Optimus Prime. I am the future of war. Resistance is futile. Jedi's strength flows from the Force, but beware of the dark side. Oh I man, that's kind of catchy. It's got a nice ring to it. I mean, it's not technically accurate, but it's a gold titanium. Oh lord. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. You're listening to Treks in Sci Fi. Hello, everyone. Uh, we've got a special guest today on Treks in Sci Fi. Together with me over Skype is book author. Mark, and your last name is pronounced Cushman. I guess that's fairly simple, right, Mark?
1: That's right, Rico.
0: Yeah, and Mark, uh, for those not familiar with what he's, he's worked on, uh, he has currently two, two books on Star Trek out. I think there are only two so far. Is that correct, Mark?
1: Right. Book two came out in um, March, and book three, the last one, comes out in the fall.
0: Oh, fantastic. Uh, The books that Mark has worked on are uh, called, both of them are called These Are the Voyages. And for all the Star Trek fans out there, that should be a a familiar phrase. But basically Mark's books, the two volumes that are out so far, each one is uh, for each of the original series season, season one and season two. And he's basically gone to enormous, enormous efforts Uh, to chronicle the basically the making the best making of the original series that I've ever seen or read uh, with very detailed production notes and, and behind the scenes cast information, interviews, just, just a ton of great, great information on each episode and other background material as well. Again, volume one for season one, volume two for season two. And, I guess the first question mark that I, that everyone probably would have is why did you do this? <laughs> How did it start? And, and and a little background, I guess, on uh, on for the people who haven't read some of the the early parts of the books and that describes that. But how'd you get into this to begin with?
1: I interviewed Gene Roddenberry in 1982 for a uh, TV special here in Los Angeles, and uh, I was very young at that time, just, just getting started in the uh, the TV industry as a writer and uh, uh, in the process of interviewing him, and this is right after the first movie had come out and the second one, Rathicon hadn't come out yet, but they were in the process of making that. Uh, I saw just the massive amount of documentation he had uh, on the original series, on the making of it, that which is not normal that um, production companies or producers will keep every scrap of paper and every memo and every draft of every script and so
0: forth. And this was stuff that was in in Gene Roddenberry's personal uh, archives himself, or Paramount? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, Gene kept a copy of everything, and Bob Justman, his uh, co-producer, kept a copy of everything, and and around that time, uh, both of them donated their collections to the uh, UCLA Special Collections Library, so actually anybody can look at these things, but you have to make an appointment, and come into Los Angeles, and go into UCLA, and... Sit there with somebody watching you like a hawk as you turn each page. It's kind of like that scene in Citizen Kane, as yeah, the guys going through the Thatcher. And uh, of course, papers.
0: all all of this is, is as far as I are, am aware, it, it's all physical media. You know, good old physical paper files, mm-hmm. uh, onion skins. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> onion, onion
1: skin back in the days. Good book. old
0: typewriter onion skin, right.
1: Yeah, John John D F Black and Mary Black told me Star Trek had the first uh, Xerox machine out of any of the production offices in uh, Paramount, and of course they did the scripts through uh, they mimeographed them. Yes. But everything else was uh, carbon copy and onion skin paper. Wow. So it's very delicate, very fragile documents. But all these memos that went back and forth, the production schedules, the um, I even licensed the Nielsen ratings for every episode. So you really get uh, you get to Go into each episode that was made for Star Trek and see the writing process, the production process, the ratings, the fan letters that came in, uh the communications from the network, the reviews from Daily variety, and things of that nature. Now, I have so you to get to walk through every episode in great detail. yeah,
0: I have to ask is it how organized was this material? in other words, was it like, oh, here's a file on. The Apple episode. Here's a here's a file on the Doomsday Machine. I, I am assuming and guessing it maybe was not that organized, or
1: it, it is to a certain degree. Um, I, I wish I, I could say absolutely positively uh, no exceptions, but uh, yeah, they have uh, files on each episode. Okay, that might have six or seven files within the bigger one, uh, all kept in boxes. Okay, and thousands of, of documents on each episode. Uh, plus every copy of each script and story outline and all the notes back and forth between the staff members and the network and all these things. Wow! Uh, but then they have other files that will include uh, budget reports and ratings and, and correspondences and fan letters and so those things may, for instance, you said the apple. A lot of those things may pertain to the apple, but they're in different areas. Okay. So I had to spend six months. Uh, at UCLA, going through all this. Now, if I had started these books back in 1982
0: when Gene Roddenberry invited me to,
1: <laughs> I, could have, I could have done it at his, at his office.
0: So he there was actively he was actively had in mind uh, the idea then of of having some way of archiving into a you know a compendium form one book or multiple yes. books rather absolutely. than and, and a way to archive all of this. Okay,
1: absolutely. He and he and Bob Justman both. Now, you know, if, if you're really devoted to TOS, you know that there was a book called The Making of Star Trek that came out sure. in 1968 mm-hmm. while the show was still in production. So it doesn't cover the entire series, and it really doesn't go into any detail on individual episodes. It's more about uh, Gene creating the show and the pilots and, and yep. some of the struggles with NBC.
0: Yeah, I know that and book I well.
1: To, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to know the thinking behind all the episodes, from the, the great ones to the ones that didn't work. You know, I wanted to know what were they thinking when they decided to do The Way of Eden as a musical. Uh, I wanted to know what went wrong with The Alternative Factor in season one, which was uh, consistently a very good season, and then suddenly here's this episode right in the middle that just doesn't seem to work.
0: Yeah, it's interesting uh, you bring I, that one up. I recently uh, I recently did a podcast. I, I, throughout doing the podcast that I've been running for, for a number of years now, I is Certain podcasts, certain episodes, it's not all about Star Trek, but I cover uh, pretty regularly a, an individual episode, and I recently did The Alternative Factor, and your your book wa- was invaluable in providing, and it really, you know, I've, I'm someone who grew up on the reruns of the series, and you're absolutely right, that that episode always stuck out like almost a little bit of a sore thumb. I mean, there's some cool and interesting things in it, but I'm like, oh. what, what? And, and and what I, after I read the uh, excerpt of what you wrote about that, it it, it was like completely eye opening. In other words, it was like, oh well, this makes perfect sense. This guy came in, um, you know, Robert Brown, right? That's his name, right? Who played Lazarus?
1: Well, it was supposed and, to be John
0: Drew Barrymore, right? And but Robert Brown came in at the he last quit during minute during the
1: first yeah. day of production because the script got gutted. Yes. Because NBC wanted to take out the interracial relationship that was happening between Lazarus and Lieutenant Masters. So uh, that, that character, Lieutenant Masters, was, was wasted by the time the script was rewritten. Yeah. These rewrites were going on during the first couple of days of production. Uh, so, you know, once, once the network found out that a black actress had been hired, and then they had John Drew Barrymore, who was a very famous white actor. Uh, they weren't quite ready for that interracial kiss that was going to happen two years later on Star Trek. Exactly. So yeah. when, when, when um, Barrymore was sitting in makeup and he saw the new pages for the script, he says, this isn't what I agreed to do. And this doesn't have the quality that it had before. And so he walked. And they had to scramble to find a replacement, which was Robert Brown, as you just mentioned. But it, it starts a domino effect in yes. production. When yes. something like that goes wrong, it just creates the domino effect that now everything's going wrong. The entire production gets thrown out of out of whack, and uh, and uh, and you see the the results. And what's also interesting, and this is one of the things I wanted to find out in going through all these documents, not just what went wrong, but how did they feel about it? You know, they had just done the week before they they did Arena, which turned out beautifully, and then they do all the Alternative Factor, which doesn't. And how do they feel and and you read the memos there, and they wanted they wish they could have buried the episode they didn't want to air it mm-hmm. but unfortunately, yeah. the studio's saying you just spent two hundred thousand dollars making this thing, which would be like uh one point five million today yeah and they said you're you're gonna put it on the network because we we have to get our money back we're part of it anyway
0: yeah no that's uh it, it's it's really interesting, you know the people who don't really you know they're you know, I've been into this for a while and, and have read a lot of behind-the-scenes information on various TV shows and movies. But for people who don't really look at that or, or learn about it a little bit, you know, they'll watch something and they'll go, well, that was good or that was bad. And, and it's such a, you know, probably even more these days, I think, than it probably was back then. But there's such collaborative efforts and there's so many things that mm-hmm. happen. And, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And, uh, right. you know, it's real interesting to, to see what these guys thought about what they were doing at the time. I, I, I thought it was really interesting with that, going back to that episode in particular, you know, the involvement of, of William Shatner, for example, you know, using, didn't he have to use a little influence and, and help getting some actors at certain times, some of their guests, I think?
1: Well, he w- he was the one who recommended Robert Brown. He right, knew Robert right. Brown. They had done a pilot together a few years earlier. So they're stuck suddenly with their, their lead guest star walked out who was a major guest star. And this was a big part. And it's like, what are we going to do? So they started filming the scenes that didn't involve him as they scrambled to find a replacement. And Shatner said, what about uh, Robert Brown? I've got his home phone number and he's good. And, uh, so they called up Robert Brown, it was his birthday, and he was in the middle of a birthday party out in Malibu, as you know from reading the book. Yeah. And, and they said, come on down, we need to talk to you. So he said, well, I guess I can leave for a little bit. So he drives into Desilu, Roddenberry puts his arm around him and starts walking him towards makeup, and he says, okay, we're going to put you in makeup. Here, <laughs> here's like- the script, and by the way, I know you live way out in Malibu, so I, I, I rented a uh, room in the motel across the street, and you can stay there for the entire week while we're shooting. And Robert Brown saying, "Wait, what are you talking about? What script?"
0: And, yeah, he's already got him even, basically, uh, you know, hired. I don't even, even. know this show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. hold so on, Gene. Am I getting paid? How good. much am I getting paid, Gene? Yeah, exactly. Uh, about
1: five grand. Yeah. Uh, you know, which would be um, oh dear, it would be over fifty thousand today. But you think about what actors get paid today for an episode, and fifty thousand is nothing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you hear about you know people easily being making like a million dollars for big stars, you know, per episode, stuff like that. So, um, so the I, I, let's go back for a little, a little bit though, and um, and and give people the, a little bit of background on you and your first associations with Star Trek in terms of you know, were you a fan growing up? Did you get into it later? I know a little bit about it from I, I've just to let you know I have not read these books cover to cover. I've skimmed them, but. Uh, yeah, tell everybody a little bit about what you know. What Star Trek, I guess, when you first were exposed to it, and what you, you know, how you uh, first were um, introduced to the show.
1: I was growing up on a dairy farm in Tillamook, Oregon, making Tillamook cheese, and um, uh, there's a lot of mountains in that area. And we live seven miles out of town, so we didn't receive NBC. We received ABC and CBS out of Portland. Couldn't pick up the NBC station except in the summer. And I would go into school when I was in the, um, I guess the fourth grade or somewhere around there. And all the other kids were talking about this new show called Star Trek. And I didn't know what they were talking about. I thought it was a strange name. Yeah. What, what's a Star Trek?
0: Yeah. What is that? And,
1: and, but I, but I learned to love it real quick because the teacher, this is rough. <laughs> she, she would be giving, it'd be a Thursday and she'd say, okay, here's your homework. And there'd be this collective groan that would come out of the classroom. And She'd say, I know, I know it's Star Trek night. Okay, no no homework, and everybody would cheer. Yeah, so I'm thinking, I don't know what Star Trek is, but I
0: like it. Yeah, everyone else, <laughs> and is I finally, in.
1: I finally got to see it during the summer repeats. The NBC station kind of faded in enough yeah. to where we could watch it. And the first episode I saw was the rerun of The, uh, the Devil in the Dark about the Horda. Okay, and um. Uh, got hooked instantly, instantly. I had never seen anything like it. I was enjoying Lost in Space. I was enjoying The Wild Wild West, The Avengers, lots of great shows on yeah. at that time. For, for somebody my age, it was TV was a great playground. But this one was not only just as entertaining, if not more so entertaining, but after you had watched the episode, you'd find yourself thinking about it because there was a theme and there was a point to each episode. Yes, Like Porta being a mother trying to protect its children and everybody thinks it's a monster and they find out, no, we're the monsters, we're killing its babies. So you walk away from that and, and, and find, I would find myself thinking about it for days and days and I couldn't wait till the next episode. So that was my initial connection. And then when I came to Los Angeles to pursue a, a career in TV... Um, I was working for a production company, they were doing a special on Star Trek, they arranged for me to go down and interview Gene Roddenberry, and that kind of started the whole process. He invited me to do these books, and said he would support, give me, uh, you know, support on it, um, give me his time, additional interviews, uh, give me all the copies of everything I needed. They made me copies of all the scripts right there and then, you know, walked away with 80 scripts, that includes the pilot, uh, and... Um, but unfortunately I was too busy and my career was starting to build and and I just didn't get time to write this book until several years ago. And then I took six years, uh, to do all the research, interview everybody I could find and, uh, and write these one book for each season, about 20 pages for each episode.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great, uh, you know, I, I grew up a little past, even though I was, really young when you were still or first seeing the original series uh, airing as it was well at least in reruns the following summer i grew up on the it, with a lot of fans i think in the 70s with reruns of it on pretty much you know week week uh every weekday or whatever you'd see an episode and and that's where i it's funny when you mentioned the you know the devil in the dark i, I my first episode i think that i saw was tomorrow was yesterday Oh. And w- which, if you know, you know, I'm sure you know it real well, that episode, the way it starts out is is very unusual for Star Trek. You know, it starts out with uh, Air Force Base and this jet taking off, and then, of course, it sees the Enterprise there in the skies of Earth, which is uh-huh. very non-Trek, you know, as far as the way it starts out. It doesn't start on the bridge of the Enterprise. It doesn't start right. with, you know, the right. usual things that are that typically happen. It's like, well this could be a lot of other shows. And then that's when I first got exposed and hooked on a rerun of that.
1: Yeah. Well, if you think about it though, that's actually a great episode to be introduced to because of the way it starts on earth in your day. And it takes you up and you see this strange thing. And then you get to go inside that strange thing as the pilot is beamed in and he gets a tour of the ship and, and he gets introduced to Spock and, so really, it's a—I never thought about it, but that's an interesting way to get introduced into the show because you're kind of getting that tour that Captain Christopher is getting.
0: Yeah, you can easily. I know somebody yeah. who the yep.
1: first episode he saw, a friend of mine, was um, "Mirror, Mirror" during the second season. Now that one, I'm thinking, what a crazy way to start watching Star yeah, Trek. That, w- How do you that would you even make be. sense of it?
0: Yeah, that one would be hard. I think. I, I think definitely, you know, some of the the first season episodes. Really resonate, and I think there's a lot of great ones there that you could see as a first episode. Some of the other ones that get more involved with the characters, like you said, Mirror Mirror, where if you really know the characters and the cast, you 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 certainly get a lot more out of that episode than than if you wouldn't. But uh...
1: yeah, well, you see a lot of the memos in the book from Stan Robertson at uh, NBC, Mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of the notes that he would give Gene Roddenberry and his staff as they're preparing the scripts would be. What if this is the first episode one of our audience members is going to see? Because he said, you know, every week there is going to be people tuning in who haven't seen the show yet. Yeah, it's a really good so, point. Yep. Yeah, so he said you got you got to kind of give them the backstory a little bit, the background information, and that's and they use the captain's log as a great tool uh, to help introduce people into the show each week and, and into the um, the episode, but also the opening narration. You know, they didn't uh, Gene Roddenberry and John D F Black collaborated on that while star trek was filming its ninth episode and uh because they had to start delivering episodes to the network and they thought we need some kind of an opening narration that explains to people what this show is going to be about kind of like gilligan's island You know, just sit right back and here's our tale about these people who got stranded on yep. an island yep. and there's nothing better brady bunch there's nothing better than an opening title song or opening narration to say, "Here's what our show is. Here's what it's about."
0: Yeah, and they do that even on modern shows, too, to a degree. You know, like uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the show; it just finished up, but "Burn Notice." That that one, for some right. reason, springs to mind. Sure. You know, where it sure. starts out with the little opening thing: "I used to be a spy," you know, and then I right. got burned, and and this is now my life, or whatever. So, uh, right. So it, it, yeah. yeah so,
1: so they they did take steps to try to try to introduce the audience into each episode. But you're right. By the time they got into the second year, now they've got 30 episodes under their belt, and they're they're thinking, uh, okay, well let's let's start surprising people. And now they're getting notes from Stan Robertson and NBC saying, let's not start every episode with the shot of the Enterprise, and yeah. let's 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 start it differently this week. Like yeah. So they started getting a little more daring in the way that they were going to uh, begin their episodes.
0: Yeah, that's definitely, uh, true. And I never really think about that. You know, it's become so, you know, part of our culture and anyone that's seen Star Trek, you know, that some of these episodes have become so timeless and, and I'm sure both of us have seen them so many times there. I used to play this game when they would air, I don't know if you ever did it, but, um, especially if I was over at someone else's house and we were watching an episode where I could pretty much memorize, you know, I knew the episodes and the dialogue Uh of the original series. Uh I, I could just do it. I would, um, I would be able to say the lines before they would appear. I used to listen to um back, you know, this, this is this will date to me too, but you know, I had audio, I had recorded cassettes, audio uh recordings of the episodes themselves, you know, back way before even VCRs were around. So, yeah. and I would play oh, yeah. those Oh,
1: everybody did. Those audio shows did. because yeah, it's we,
0: it's very dialog uh, You're right. Yeah, and they're very dialogue uh heavy shows, you know, not in a bad way, but you can really follow it without really being able to see it, you know, versus some shows these days where there's so much going on without dialogue sometimes that you really have a hard time. You know, the story is very important. So like you said earlier about these things had themes and you can watch a a modern police drama or a modern medical drama maybe. And, you know, all the episodes tend to kind of follow a pattern sometime and they don't really, until they do something a little unusual, you don't really remember them after, you know, a month or two.
1: No, oh, you don't.
0: So, but these, yeah, it, these are it, a little... It's
1: funny. Um, you know, the book the book is a time machine. And, and because to really appreciate Star Trek and what they went through and how the episodes were made, I have to take you back in time and place you there in 1964, 65, 66, 67, 68, and 69. It, it, it was in production for five years. So it was a five-year mission in that regard, even though it was only on the air for three seasons. And, and so you have to know what the other shows were, what the budgets were, what kind of currency that translates into today, what was possible, what wasn't possible. For instance, in Star Trek, uh, before Star Trek came on, if you saw Outer Limits or anything that had anything to do with uh, space, uh, one of the few episodes where they would do that, it was always just stationary stars in the background. And with Star Trek, they got very innovative and said, no, we want these stars to move. But they had to figure out, how are we going to do that now? And they created three different animation plates that would move towards the camera at different speeds. And how are we going to film the Enterprise? Well, they built this minotaur, but it's not really a minotaur, it's almost 12 feet long, and uh, with blinking lights and windows and the whole bit, Uh, and the camera had to move past it, and it's up against a green screen. Well, you know, that's commonplace today. Actually, now it's all done with computers, but but this was the first time anybody had done that, so they're inventing everything they're doing. They have to invent the ship, all the sound effects, the costumes, all the worlds they're going to visit each week. So just the chore and the challenge of doing a show like that. Today we sit there and we're so saturated with science fiction that we any of us can sit there and dream up ideas. It's easy because we have such a um, so much material that we've been exposed to in our right. lifetime. Yeah. But you go back to there, 1964, when Roddenberry was doing the first pilot, and there was very little out there, uh, other than books. And so to do uh, something like this for TV was just remarkable.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, the, you know, just like you said, everything had to be invented. You know, they go out and say, hey, I need something for Dr. McCoy to use his medical instruments. Well, you know, go get a bunch of salt shakers. You know, and yeah. and, and uh, you know, and then you know, we need something that looks like a gun but isn't a gun. And then you know, they get this, you know, this guy that invents these props that, you know, kind of, you know, you can see it and you can say, yeah, that I could see that as being some kind of futuristic weapon of some kind, but it looks different enough that it works. You know, the audience will accept it. The um, one thing that that popped into my head that as we were talking here that I wanted to ask you was. Did You you did a bunch of interviews. You had this material that you went through, these archives. How often, and, and did it become ever difficult of, were you getting any like conflicting information at times? Like somebody said, oh, oh no, that's yeah. not how it happened, but this is how it happened. Of and then course. you go talk to someone else and say, no, this is how it happened. And, yeah. and how did you, how was that, and maybe a couple of examples of some of that, uh, that how did you handle that?
1: Well, you know, the memory plays tricks. I mean, we're, we're now coming up on uh, more than 45 years ago that this show started. Matter sure. of fact, uh, we're, we're a couple years away from the 50th anniversary. And so, you know, you're interviewing people. Uh, and I started the interview process in 82 with Roddenberry. And a couple years later, Dorothy Fontana and Justman and on and on. But a lot of people I've just been interviewing recently as, as these books have been getting finalized. And you're right. You do get... Uh, people who remember things wrong but fortunately I have the base of um, of all the documents I know what was shot on what day and Mm -hmm. where yeah how long it took and how much overtime they went into and if anything happened on the set that day Michelle Nichols was driving into the studio and was in a car crash and cut her lip and they had to stitch it from inside so it wouldn't show up in front of the camera and things like that yeah so so I know everything that's going on on all these particular days and I'll be interviewing somebody and I'll know the days they shot the episode, and she'll be saying, "Yeah, we shot that one in uh, in early 1968." And I said, "Oh no, no, you shot it in November of '67." Oh no, 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 I didn't come out to L.A. until later than that. It's like, yeah. well, then you you transported out because <laughs> yeah. you were out here.
0: Well, I couldn't it, remember it, that. I'm, I'm, yeah. you know, you know the, so, yeah.
1: You know what you do to answer your question? What you do is is uh, I don't censor anybody yeah. in these books. Uh, you know, on the front of the book it says the story Gene Roddenberry and Robert H. Justman wanted you to know. Well, that's something my publisher put at the top of his book. But it's true. Gene and Bob wanted these documents to come out. That's why they saved them all. They knew they were making history. They knew they were doing something that had never been done before. But yet you'll read in the book and you'll read somebody saying something bad about Gene Roddenberry. And, and I often think about that. I think, isn't it funny that up on the front of the book, it says the story Gene Roddenberry wanted to know. And then here's somebody saying Gene was no good or he, he, he was a bad writer or his, yeah. he, his characters made speeches rather than better interaction. But the thing is, is I'm not going to censor anybody. You know, everybody gets to say what they want to say, but it's them saying it. And then I try to find a quote from somebody else that will maybe counterpoint or balance against it. Sure. But at the end of it all, like, I don't know if you've read the chapter in book two on, on William Shatner, because right around the middle of season two is when a lot of people were starting to complain that he was uh, being too assertive and kind of running the show.
0: Yeah. The, that captain title went to his head, you know, is the yeah. common, common people, you know, most people think. Yep.
1: Well, we have a whole chapter of that on the, in the book, and that chapter is made up of all these uh, quotes from all these people I interviewed. And maybe about 10, 15 percent of them say bad things about Shatner and the other 85 percent say he was great. He was so entertaining on the set. He was so gracious. He was so wonderful and on and on and on. So, uh, you know, I'm let, I'm giving you I'm not censoring anybody. I'm not yeah. slanting it one way or another. I'm. I'm going. Just the I'm facts, letting the man. naysayers. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let the naysayers say what they want, but then I'm letting you know what the other people say, and you can see how it balances out, and you can decide for yourself. Yeah. Hey, we all have a little good in it, goodness, and we all have a little bad.
0: Absolutely. But you know yeah.
1: what? If 85% yeah. of the people you meet love you, uh, I, I guess that makes you a pretty decent person.
0: Yeah, I would agree, and you know what? One thing that I always say, and in this day of the internet, I, I think it's a little tricky, but. I always try to tell people, uh, you know, kind of make up your own mind with things and also to uh, don't necessarily listen to the vocal vocal minority is the way I like to put it. You know, a lot of times, for example, uh, you'll have uh, somebody will put something up on, you know, online on a forum or Facebook or somewhere and say, well, you know, I, I ran into, you know, this actor at a convention and he were really... They were really rude to me or something like that. And but then, you know, 10 other people will say, oh no, no, I had a good, good interaction with this person. I, I guess my point being everyone can kind of have a bad day, but don't don't necessarily think that that's just the way that person always is, you know, or something like that. I always try to be because everyone, like you said, has good and bad and has good and bad days. and it's I, I think uh, you know, these guys were doing some groundbreaking stuff. There was a lot of pressure, obviously. You know, all these shows were going over time, over budget, and and that uh, I think that puts people in a little bit of a pressure cooker, too, situation. uh, I wanted to also touch on, you know, real brief about uh, maybe name a couple of things that really uh, kind of stand out as maybe surprises to you as you were going through the, the research and the material through Trek, was there, was there any particular things either through the interviews or what you found in the documentation that was like, wow, that, that, I had no idea or that's not how I heard it before or anything like that?
1: Constantly. You know, there's so much folklore out there on the internet and in other books and magazine articles, but especially the internet, that about, I would say, no exaggeration, probably about 25% of what you read is not true. Yeah, um, and and the truth is much more interesting. By the way,
0: yeah, I would agree. So yeah, well, your books are very, very interesting, very compelling. They, they
1: correct a lot of misinformation. Well, well, one of them, the most startling thing for me was the ratings. Now, I was around back then; I was very young, but I didn't know anybody who wasn't watching the show. And uh, naturally, I'm thinking of my friends from from school. Sure, and they're my age, and we were all hooked on this show. But our teachers were watching it. Uh, My parents were watching it. My friend's parents were watching it. You know, we'd have a block with 10 houses on the block, and maybe there would be one or two houses where they're watching something else. And everybody else is watching Star Trek because back then, when it was on the air, you had one TV in most houses. And so if the teenagers are dying to see something or the kids want to see it, That's what you're watching, right. the parents will go along with it. And and my parents didn't mind because it was a good show. My dad really got into it. So we knew the show was more popular than they were telling us. And I thought, boy, this Nielsen media service must be crazy that they can't even figure out who's watching what. How could they get it so wrong?
0: Yeah. It seems it was like, a
1: big shock when yeah. I when I licensed the ratings from Nielsen, they, they didn't have it wrong. They they told NBC Star Trek was a hit. They said it's your top rated Thursday night show. And yet NBC said, No, it's not doing well, we want to get rid of it. And so they moved it to Friday nights after trying to cancel it. And then then Nielsen said it's your top rated Friday night show. And yet they tried to cancel it, and they got all these letters that came in and marches against NBC. Yep. So they moved it to 10 p.m., which is the death slot, the worst time slot of the week, Friday nights from 10 to 11. And uh, and the ratings are still – it was it was averaging a 28% audience share in that time slot, yep. which is just <laughs> remarkably good. So we weren't being told the truth. No, no it was not a, a hit in the sense that it wasn't in the top ten. Although it was during the summer of '67, it got into the top ten, uh, but but the um, but the numbers were very good. If you're winning your time slot, or if you're the top-rated show on the network that night, the network does not cancel you. But they kept trying to cancel Star Trek. So then I had to find out why, and I had to have to go through all the letters and the communications yeah. between Gene Roddenberry to find out about the rift between him and NBC. So stuff like that. Now that now to me that's major. So these aren't little discoveries. These are gigantic.
0: So would you would you say that the uh, that ongoing, you know, and I read that in in various places in your in your books, that ongoing kind of conflict or battle or rift between Gene and the network, you know, him insisting on doing the show the way he wanted to do it and trying to not, you know, basically, you know, he would do what he would want. And the network really seemed to not be able to control him. Was that that? situation you think a bigger part of uh, the cancellation, the ultimate cancellation of the show than the ratings itself?
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, the ratings weren't. The ratings really weren't. Uh, Back then, you needed to get about a 25% audience share to get picked up, uh, which is a lot. I mean, today, any show would give anything to get a 25% audience share.
0: Now, the follow-up to that would be if Gene had kind of capitulated or done a lot of what the networks had been asking from different memos that you have read throughout your research, mm-hmm. would yeah. Star Trek have been the same show? In other words, was it sort of no, a catch-22? would have, and yeah. it would
1: have gone for a lot more years. So the ratings, were, the ratings justified it getting renewed, especially the fact that it was a younger demographic. That show really should have run for 10 years based yeah, on its the, ratings.
0: the okay. audience they want to appeal to, yeah.
1: Yeah, but the problem was—there well, were two problems. One— is the type of stories that Gene wanted to tell on Star Trek, and again, that's why the books serve as a time machine, so you can find out that entertainment shows were not doing stories about Vietnam. They were not doing stories about racism, sexism, religion, not not on this level. Yeah, not not the type of stories Star Trek was doing, or hook, hookers in space like Mud's Women. You know, you just didn't do that kind of stuff. You could show a saloon girl on Gunsmoke, you know, Miss Kitty, but she, you never alluded to that— No, she never
0: left the bar, you know, anyway. She never went upstairs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They
1: never alluded to the fact that people were going upstairs to have sex with these women, which is how <laughs> it really was in the Old West. So it sure. was all very sanitized. So Star Trek was getting away with telling stories and making statements and making political statements
0: that no other entertainment shows were doing at that time. And wrapping in a nice sci-fi wrapper, you know.
1: yeah. And which wasn't fooling anybody. You know, (laughs) Roddenberry knew, uh, NBC knew what this story was about. And, you know, the Enterprise incident was the Pueblo incident. Balance of Terror was about the Viet Cong coming across the border and doing attacks and then going back to the other side and we couldn't chase them. And so each one of these stories had this message that had to do with what was in the newspapers that day. Well, it was very much like... the network didn't like this and they tried to... um, uh, stifle him, you know, try to control him. You use the word control, which was really big back then. And, uh, and he bucked the system. Gene was a rebel.
0: Even though
1: he'd been a cop, even though he had been an air force pilot, he really was a rebel in the sense that he marched to his own drum. He did not, he did not want anybody telling him what to do. And he was very disrespectful to the network people in his letters, which you see in the book, in the meetings, Uh, and, and so NBC just, you know, when you treat a network that way, they're, they're going to say, we're getting rid of you and we don't care how popular your show is. We can't guarantee a hit, but we can guarantee a failure. We're going to move your show to the worst time slots we got, and we're going to disassociate the audience and we're going to cancel you. And that's it. And, and so that's how it works. That's the TV game.
0: Is always it always seemed to me you know these this, this show, just like they did with the Twilight Zone, outer limits, you know where they tried to tell a, uh, you know some type of story or a theme in it like you mentioned and, and carried that on into what they did in Star Trek. you know that, that seems to be something that is 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 nearly unknown these days you know is, is very rare you know to you know that kind of a show or that kind of a storytelling method. His yeah. has you know is just not uh, not really done well, Twilight so.
1: Twilight Zone got away with it because Rod Serling was the hottest writer in TV. He won a bunch of Emmys for writing for Playhouse 90 and right. all these anthology shows, Requiem for a Heavyweight, things of that nature. Patterns was another one that he won an Emmy for. So CBS wanted him to do a series, and they wanted him to do an anthology series. They didn't want it to be science fiction, or whatever
0: it was, cause yeah, it, fantasy you know, or Zone. yeah. You
1: know, But that's what he wanted to do. So uh, they tried to talk him into doing something else, but that's what he wanted to do. So they put his show on Friday nights uh, because they thought, well, we want you on the network. We want to win the Emmys. We want the prestige of having Rod Serling under contract, but we don't want people really watching the show because we're going to get a lot of letters. So they put Twilight Zone on Friday nights. The ratings were never terribly good, but they kept it on for five, six years. Anyway, because they won Emmys every year. Uh, and then Gene Roddenberry was was the next Rod Serling in TV. He wanted to be Jonathan Swift. He wanted to make these social comments. He wanted to stir things up. Uh, but NBC just did not. They, the only reason NBC bought Star Trek was they were the only network that didn't have a science fiction show on. ABC had Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea uh cbs had lost some space so nbc said well we got to get something going yeah but they also they wanted to do business with lucille ball and she owned Desilu studios and and she was the one who did the green light on star trek so they took it for that reason and uh but the minute they got in there and saw the stories that were being told and were dealing with gene it was like okay we don't want to do this anymore
0: yeah, it, it's, it's real interesting, you know, and some of that I've heard before. I actually saw Gene Roddenberry a couple of times, you know, give—he he came to uh, a couple of different times into Michigan, actually, and, you know, not just a convention appearance, but where he was giving these talks. There was a period of time where he was going around the country doing that at, I, I want to say, in the 80s, late 80s to early 90s, perhaps, but— uh, I- but anyway, he had a lot of interesting stories, you know, and he always, everyone always used to call him kind of, or said about him, he was this larger-than-life kind of character, you know, yeah. that, that just is, uh, you know, really enjoyed living and enjoyed, you know, telling stories and people and everything.
1: Yeah. He's a writer. Yeah. Writers spin tales, and you can't believe everything they say, you know? So that's that's why these books, the spine of these books is the documents. You know, so I have Roddenberry's quotes in there. I interviewed him, and I also sample a lot of these other interviews that he did, and I bring everybody's voices into these books. Everyone who ever got interviewed, if they're gone, you know, I will sample that interview. If I could find them and did a more in-depth interview, I would do that. So all the voices are present, but you've got the actual documents to really show you what was happening. So, uh, so they kind of add to it. They flesh it out a bit, but, uh, but the documents keep it straight. Yeah, the, and that—that's the main thing with these books. We've heard a lot of these stories before. There's a lot of stories in these books you haven't heard. Yeah, definitely. You're find out that you didn't ever know, but there are things you did know. But the thing is, is now you're reading the actual memos from the time, so you're not just hearing. Well, I always heard that Gene Roddenberry and the network didn't get along. You're seeing it. You're reading the letters back and forth. You're seeing how badly they're not getting along and how it gets worse each year.
0: Yeah, and it's really interesting. I think anyone who goes into this, you know, thinks about going into any kind of a career in in the field, what's what's real fascinating, real interesting to me is how collaborative and how many people were touching and involved in each little episode. You know, there are memos from this guy, that guy. You know, the stories, the writing, you know, the scripts of how many different people. I can understand Gene's reluctance sometimes to, you know, like, you know, it's— writing on a collaborative effort, you know, where you write a story and you think you've got a good script and here it is. And then like, you got 10 other people looking at it and saying, well, you know, why are you doing this? I think we should do this. And then why are you doing that? You know what? It's my story. I, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's, that, that's, uh, that gets to the classic, you know, the biggest probably story of all is, you know, city on the edge of forever with Harlan Ellison <laughs> mm-hmm. of the biggest conflict of, 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 probably you know that's been known for a long time in star trek which is you know here's a story that harlan wrote they you know they changed quite a bit of it and that this is what they're going to do and i I can understand everybody's viewpoint on it i guess in a way i mean what was your take on that whole episode and, and situation well
1: you know harlan uh wrote a great outer limits and he had written other great Outer Limits, and City on the Edge of Forever would have been just a fantastic episode of the Outer Limits, an anthology series, which you know, with all new characters. Yeah. Uh, his script didn't feel anything like Star Trek, and so they had to rewrite it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and Harlan is a very proud writer, and he's and he deserves to be because he's remarkably talented. So you know, he's not going to appreciate anybody rewriting his script, but they couldn't have done it the way it was written because Kirk didn't sound like Kirk, Spock didn't sound like Spock. It wasn't really about the main characters. It was, so it's, uh, you know, and you got the network wanting changes and things of that nature. And then you got budget and he was wrote a script that they just couldn't have afforded. It turned out that was the most expensive episode they ever made anyway. But, but, uh, if they hadn't rewritten it, they couldn't have afforded to do it at all. So now you hear Harlan, because I interviewed him. You hear Dorothy. I interviewed her, and she did one of the drafts, and Gene talks about it, and uh, Gene Kuhn talks about it, and on and on. But but you also find out who wrote what now in that
0: chapter. Right, what piece of uh, it.
1: Yeah, and I I think uh, they're both excellent. I think Harlan's script is excellent, and I think the one that was written by... um, uh, Dorothy and the Two Jeans is excellent as well. Um, they're just very different. Yeah, and they a very, both won awards. Very the, tricky. The Harlan's uh, version won the uh, Writers Guild Award, and the, um, uh, the the official Star Trek version won the Hugo Award.
0: Right. So they
1: both won awards, and, and rightfully so.
0: Yeah, it's a very uh, good point about you know he he basically he, you're exactly right. He wrote a, a story that could have been about any anyone else. It wasn't really. A Star Trek specific story. You could have slipped in anybody else into those roles and characters, and it would have been just fine. So the you uh,
1: asked me Rico a few minutes back or several minutes back about uh, some of the things that surprised
0: me. Yeah, exactly uh, right. The well, ratings you know,
1: was. I mentioned the ratings, but I'll tell you a few other things real quick because we you just touched on one. Is that uh, I was really surprised to find out how much Gene Roddenberry, Gene Kuhn, and Dorothy Fontaine and Fred Freiberger. Uh, and Arthur Singer, uh, how much of the rewriting they did. Uh, the fact that the first 13 episodes of Star Trek, which Gene produced, um, you know, 60, 70 percent of the dialogue and, all, and most of those came from Gene Roddenberry's typewriter, not from the person whose name is on the screen. Yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, or, or John D.F. Black uh, did the final drafts of uh, Miri and Mudd's Women Without Credit, and Gene did. Corbinite Maneuver and Balance of Terror and and a bunch of others. And then Gene Kuhn comes in, and now he's rewriting all the scripts and, and splitting up the work with Dorothy Fontana, who was promoted at that point to be script consultant. And then the same thing during the third year with Fred Friedberger and Art Singer. They're rewriting these things so much because they know how the characters talk. And the freelancers, most of them, are not getting it right. So I, I found that very interesting to find out who was doing the work Yeah. in that respect. Yeah. I found it very interesting on the production end. Uh, we, I talked a minute ago about the special effects and how they had to invent everything and just the effort that they had to go through that it would take all day just to shoot one flyby of the Enterprise. And if there was a jiggle in the camera, the whole thing was lost. I was fascinated, Rico, in, in reading about how they did the, the split screens. So you could have two Kirks on camera talking to each other and what are little girls made of or the enemy within or or so forth. And today, you know, I've shot the, I've directed a few things where we did split screen and 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 it's a piece of cake in a computer. But back then they had to put a black cloth over half the camera lens and <laughs> run the same section of film through the camera twice. So only half of it's being exposed. And the second time you run it through, you switch the black cloth to the other side of the lens So the other half of the film is being exposed and you're not going to know until the next day when you screen that film if you did it right, if it works or anything else. So it's just remarkable seeing how these things began, the the birth of all the special effects that we've come to know in science fiction and photographic effects. And this show really brought all that stuff forward. Yeah. That was interesting. Yeah. It was also interesting finding out why Gene Coon left. Uh, and, th- and and why Dorothy Fontana stepped down, and and in book three, what what went wrong with the third season, which wasn't a complete disaster. There's yeah, I'm, I'm looking big, forward to checking
0: that because that that you know that season obviously is the one that that uh, is is quite a bit different than the first couple. I and it's great to hear your comments about those early episodes. You know, I've heard some of that before of how much Gene Roddenberry worked on the you know the first season. And I think, you know, that's so important to, you know, that it set the tone for those characters, set the way they would interact with each other, the dialogue itself. I wonder if some of the, you know, why it was rewritten is that some of the, you know, these outside freelancers that were coming in really didn't know the show. You know, there was that classic thing that was being tossed around that they had this Bible, you know, this Star Trek Bible that told you, this is Spock, this is Kirk. The Enterprise yeah. does this, and okay, go ahead, write a story now, with very yeah. little, you know, really never even maybe seeing yeah. an episode at that point in time. And, well, you know, and, when you when, know,
1: when Roddenberry was rewriting these first 13 episodes, the show hadn't even aired. So all right. any of these writers had to go by is they came in and they did a screening of the, uh, the pilot. The pilot, yep. Yeah. Which didn't even have Dr. McCoy in it or, or, or Yahora or anything else. So they're writing for characters they haven't even seen. Now, how do you write dialogue for a character you haven't seen? But it, it, t- take it one step further, Rico. Back, go, again, go back then through the time machine and look at the other shows that are on television. How do you even write for a character like Mr. Spock? You know, there's nobody like him on television. Yes. Uh, so again, today, it's, it's easier because we've been so exposed to science fiction. Back then, you weren't. So these writers are coming in, and they're good writers, and they've written for Westerns and, and, and courtroom dramas and medical dramas and police shows. And, and now they're being told to write a script about a spaceship and, and a Vulcan and this dynamic captain who's kind of like a Horatio Hornblower. He's, he's a leader, but he's got certain insecurities that he keeps hidden and so each one of these characters had such a unique voice that these freelancers had trouble. Now, as the show progressed, it got easier for the freelancers because now they had seen more episodes, but even still, even in the third year, there, it was a pretty heavy dialogue rewrite on most of these scripts.
0: Yeah. The, uh, I, I got a couple last things and we'll probably wrap things up in the next five, five ten minutes. But, uh, first, first off, uh, have you, how how much have you seen the, you know, the later treks and are, is there, or the original seri- series, uh, I'm guessing still probably your favorite of, of them. And of the original series, would you maybe pick a couple of episodes that you feel are, are, are your favorites and maybe something mm-hmm. that, that after you read some research on it, this is probably multi-question, but mm-hmm. maybe an original series episode that you've become more appreciative of after you did your... Your research. Yeah.
1: Well, um, I had I had an association with Next Generation. I I um, sold them a couple properties, and one of them turned into the episode Sarac, which I pitched to Roddenberry actually. And uh, so I was involved with that show okay. for for a little bit. Uh, wasn't a big fan of Next Generation because when I was there, that was the first couple years. The, that show got cooking. After like the third season, yeah. yeah. Uh, but when I was in there doing pitches and so forth, it was fairly new, and uh, they. Uh, I think Gene was making a mistake in the fact that he had all the characters liking each other. There wasn't any real conflict between the cast, and conflict is the name of the game when when you're hard a writer. to write
0: for. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. totally. <laughs> I love you. I love you. I love you know. Yeah. It's I, like, yeah. Everybody <laughs> liked everybody. You're great. Else. You're great. You know. It's
1: boring. Yeah. <laughs> So so then they brought in the Borg and it got more interesting from that point. Um, I also pitched to um, Voyager and uh, Enterprise. Never pitched to Deep Space Nine, but I did go into the others. Um, and so I, I so I was around for mm-hmm. all that
0: stuff. Okay.
1: Uh, I like these this new movie series. I, I like the two movies that have come
0: out. Okay, that's a good <laughs> yeah. That's a good thing too. I, I've enjoyed them too. They're they're different. They're not you know. They're not the way Star Trek has been in a way, but I think they're they're fun to watch, and I think they have the the characters pretty well there.
1: Yeah, I lo- I mean I like TOS better, but but I got to say next to TOS next to the classic seventy nine, uh, these two movies I've enjoyed more than anything I've ever seen on Star Trek. Uh, they're, they're they're typical of, of the way action movies are done today. They're a little too fast paced. They're a little too cheeky dialogue they're a little too unrealistic in the fact that spock's having to fight with this this guy and he's getting thrown (laughs) you know against against a wall with such force and yet he comes back fighting instead of having every bone in his body broken so that so you have to suspend belief on a lot of this stuff yeah but having said that it's damn entertaining yeah uh I enjoyed a lot of episodes of Next Generation after they brought in the Borg and after they started really making that show more interesting. Uh I love the uh Trials and Tribulations episode of Deep Space Nine. I thought that was so clever the yeah, way they tied very it slick. Into the trouble yeah. with Tribbles. So no, I've I've been sampling Star Trek all along and I yeah. and I love all the different Star Treks, But the one that just really got under my skin was TOS. Absolutely, because I think it's the best. Um you know, it was the first, and that's always important. It's the one that started it all. But I think it's the best because the characters were the most interesting. They were the best defined, the most unique, and it had great conflict between the characters. So, uh, and, I lo- and also it was action-adventure, where uh, a lot of the other ones, except for the new movies, have, have a slower pace to them. They're more intellectual.
0: I always uh, found it a I little, like, a little. One of the things I like about it so much is that it, fe- it feels, and I think a lot of it's because they were inventing so much. Is it feels kind of new and fresh and raw, where you know yeah. the, you know TNG. Even though I enjoy TNG quite a bit and and love you know that cast and those characters, and it did definitely get cooking season three, four, and on, but a little too comfy sometimes on that ship. Everything looked a little oh, totally. too, you know.
1: And and you know, for instance. Um you know, it, it, everything is so easy. I'm just going to touch my, my little uh, chest here, and that's my communicator built in my shirt, and I'm going to reach the ship instantly and everything else. But with Kirk, you know, you can take away his communicator, and he has no way of calling the ship. You know, or somebody can throw his communicator on the ground and it breaks and he can't call the ship. It was just in the original show, they, they were on their own more. By the time you get into the later series, the, the universe is so populated, the technology is so advanced that you don't really have the man against the elements as much as you did in the first series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that's one of the, another reason why I like the first series. You asked what a couple of my favorite episodes were. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, well, I, I, loved, um, you know, I loved This Side of Paradise. Where Spock gets shot with the spores and falls in love. Oh
0: yeah, that's a big favorite of mine too.
1: I love the naked time where they all get the uh, the disease that makes them uninhibited, so they're kind of like drunk, but they're not slurring, but they're they're yeah. showing their true uh, their inner self. desires. Yeah. yeah, and Kirk admits that he loves the ship and and everything. I mean, see, see that's great character stuff. You would never see Picard do that. Yeah. Because Picard's not as flawed as Kirk. I think the closest Picard curious. got that
0: way was was after he was uh, assimilated, and then the the the, yes. the after effects of that. You know, I think yeah, that was good. I think brought, him down, very, to, very, uh, very brought story, him down to brought him down storyline.
1: Yeah. yeah, but but Kirk had it right from the get go. I mean, here's a guy who's that tortured every yeah. minute of his life. He can act cocky, he can act confident, but he's that tortured. And that insecure.
0: Was there someone uh, an episode that, like, I was at, uh, said about uh, something when you were researching it that said, "Wow, this really uh, either turned out really, really well for all of the trouble they had to go through for it, or something that really uh, impressed you or changed your mind, maybe."
1: I love the story on the apple in in season two. Not one of my favorite episodes, you know. Yeah, uh, it's entertaining. You it's, get a little, it's a little. It's a little out it. there. Yeah. Yeah, but if you think the entertainment value is good, you get more red shirts killed in that episode than any other. Oh, sure,
0: yeah, that I think that pretty much that episode cinched in that you don't want to wear a red shirt on the Enterprise. So
1: <laughs> that that an obsession. But uh, but the thing is, is is uh, the notes kill me? Uh, watching that script getting developed, uh, Bob Justman's notes are so witty. Yeah, uh, such an acid wit. And for and for the first uh, several drafts of that script, Val is inside a building. So Kirk is standing outside this building talking to a building, and Justin's writing these memos saying, I'm trying to picture how our audience is going to react, watching Captain Kirk spending 20 minutes talking Talk to a building. To the side oh, of a wall. And, yeah. you, and he says, "Here's a, here's a place in the script where it says the building reacts. And I'm sitting here trying to imagine how a building reacts to something that Captain Kirk says. <laughs> and so Justin finally came up with the idea and he said, Why don't we make it a godhead? Why don't we why don't we make it like those a things? Very primitive,
0: we, yeah, God, yeah. Exactly.
1: With, with uh, and, and, and he said, And then the feeders of Al can actually walk into its mouth. Yeah. Uh, yeah. so that didn't come up until almost the last draft.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: You know, um, I'm jumping ahead of book, but the book three, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, um, the half-white, half-black guys.
0: Yes. Yeah. And,
1: Great um, episode. You're black on the left-hand side
0: of the face, yeah, and I'm exactly. black
1: on the right-hand side of the face, so I'm better than you. Uh, I love that episode because it it show, shows how ridiculous racial bigotry is Yes. by reducing it to such a simple, almost absurdly simple level. Some people snicker at it saying, well, it's it's too too obvious, but I think the obviousness of it is what makes it great. Yeah. Well, right up until the pre-production stage, and I'm talking two days before cameras are going to roll, that was A Devil and an Angel,
0: Oh. Okay.
1: And, uh, and it was Judd Taylor, the director, who sat there and said, this is too obvious. We know that the, the guy who looks like the devil is going to turn out to be the better of the two, and... What if they were half white and half black? And Fred Friedberger and Arthur Singer said, that's great. And they went and started rewriting the script and delivering pages as the episode's being shot in sequence. Uh, did makeup tests just the day before it was going to start shooting. So that, that one changed right before it went to camera. and And that fascinates me when I see something like that. How daring. How, talk about sticking your neck out.
0: Yeah, well, when you think about it, I mean, that, that episode I don't think would have nearly had the impact if they had gone with an angel and, you know, the devil or whatever, just this half white, half black, you know, that that's one of, to me, one of the best episodes of season three, and it's just so, like you said, yeah, it's obvious, but... That's the point of it, that it's so obvious that this means nothing. You know, you're you're white on this side and you're white on that side. Who cares?
1: It's <laughs> a know? great line, though. Yeah. Like, are you blind? Can't you see?
0: Can't you see how different All we these are?
1: people are, are black on the, on the left side. Yeah. Oh, in-
0: we're so different. We're so different. Uh, no, <laughs> not really. You are not. So, uh, yeah. So that, that, that
1: it, was a last-minute uh, idea, and, and Fred burger whatever anybody wants to say about him he was open to good ideas and and he said
0: we got to do that we just yeah, got to do it it's it's really really interesting when you you know, dig into these things and and there are very few you know episodes that hey here's the script bang i'm laying it on the table here and and then okay let's film it you know there there's like nothing that works that way you know nothing that that you know things so many things get changed you like you said sometimes with a day or two before sometimes hours before and it, it very rarely becomes what was originally, you know, typed out.
1: Or on the set. Now, like in book one, you read on Enemy Within, where Leonard Nimoy came up with the, the Vulcan nerf pinch. Now, we've all heard that story, if you really know a lot about Star Trek, but yeah. here you get to read about it from having him tell it to you, the other people telling it to you, right. different points of view. But my favorite part of that is then seeing the letter that Nimoy gets from Roddenberry a couple days later, because Roddenberry is sitting in the projection room watching what they filmed the, the previous day, and he sees that Spock was supposed to give this guy a jittle chop. Right. Instead, he does this this neck pinch. And Roddenberry wrote, uh, scolded Nimoy, sent him this letter, which is in the book, that uh, says, you know, you can't do this. What are you, you doing? It <laughs> kind of changes on the set, because that may affect something we're writing for next week that you don't even know about. But then he says, "But in this one case, I like it, and we're going to run with it. But uh, don't do it again." Yeah. Don't
0: do it- <laughs> well, that's so, the that's the funny thing. That's, you know,
1: that's what I like is these memos. You know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Definitely, I I, I agree. There's a there's just a wealth of information. Uh, was there Was there anything else in particular, Mark, you wanted to touch on with with the books? You said the third one is coming out this fall. I know these things. I, you know, you have a huge amount of acknowledgments of all the people that you've talked to, and how much information, you know, is, is packed into these books. You know, one thing, um, besides some, you know, last comments from you that I've always, I've always dreamed of. If I, if I was given, like, here's a whole pile of money, Rico, make something, make, do whatever you want. And you can get, uh, you know, let's just say you can get permission from CBS or Paramount. I've always liked, or, or liked the idea of. I would love to see someday a, let's call it a four-hour miniseries or or maybe a little longer, and a, a making of Trek. And I don't mean, like, people talking in interviews. I mean actually doing a, a you know, telefilm or a four-hour miniseries of let's hire some young actors, let's build some sets, yeah. and then yeah. show what it was like. And, and you know, using what, what you've found in these archives i would you know that would be my dream project you know they've done that before with other things old shows or sure or some points in history where they've they've done making of but i just always thought that would be a fascinating thing to watch if they could do right. it right you're
1: right because look it's it, it, the reason i chose star trek uh besides liking star trek but you know i did a book on i spy a tv show called i spy several yeah. years ago yeah. and
0: Robert Culp And, and same Cosby. template,
1: um, because that show was the first one to put a white and a black together on network TV on equal yep. status and even show them sleeping in the same motel room together. Oh my goodness, oh, but
0: you're black on this side and I'm white on this <laughs> side. <laughs>
1: and this was really risque for 1965. Uh, yeah. NBC was afraid a lot of the southern even married married people didn't TV. sleep
0: no. in, in the same so bed.
1: I like, yeah. I like what writing about shows that changed the world. And that show opened up the floodgates to interracial casting, as did Star Trek one year later. And look at all the innovations that have come out of Star Trek and, sure. and uh, you know, cell phone and all these things. You know, So I like writing about the power of TV and shows that can change the world. And But we're getting a lot of great reviews on these books because there's a lot of people writing like the critic from the New York Post and from Author Magazine and a few others that aren't even science fiction genre magazines. But they're saying – even if you don't care that much about Star Trek, this is interesting because you get to see how a TV show is made. Exactly. And you're yep. using the most difficult show ever made as an example. Yeah, so why, the, why use the second most difficult? Why not look at the most difficult? And it was for those years that it was being produced.
0: Oh, yeah. It was uh, just a just a nightmare so, so that, to make. Now
1: getting back to your idea, we're actually taking some meetings about this uh, to see if we can turn these books into a miniseries. For the fiftieth anniversary,
0: that would be uh, yeah. I mean, I I I think that just would be great. I mean, I'd love to see something like that. Do you know an old uh, story? There was a there have been these books that are published. I think it was called originally the series was called like Star Trek New Voyages. There's yeah. a there's a story in that book. I think the first first one they ever put out, which was basically, and I don't remember the title of the story, but the idea of it was the actors from the original series end up. Like being transported to the real Star Trek, and it's basically they they're in the transporter room, and all of a sudden the actors get on the little pads, and, and something weird happens, and then they're they look up and they're not on a studio set anymore. They're really on Star Trek. I just always thought that was the fun, most fun, you know, coolest story of all of like just to take these actors and put them in that kind of situation. But I mean, oh, in a, that's that's yeah. Galaxy Quest. I mean, yeah. They did that. Yes, Quest. exactly, Galaxy wonderful. Quest. I yeah. love that movie. Well, I'm so, glad I mean, to hear was, that... Uh,
1: they changed the names, but it was basically the Star Trek people going from a convention to really going into outer space, and yeah. Tim Allen has to truly be the captain.
0: Yeah. Well, I think they did this... Didn't they try to do this with the old Batman TV series, or did they put out some kind of a... Didn't they do a uh, uh, sort of a showing how it was made with some young actors? I think there was something on TV, a two-hour movie of... Uh, Oh yeah. Of,
1: uh... Oh, they—they—I I don't know if they did it for Batman, but I wouldn't be surprised to hear that they did. They certainly did it for *I Love Lucy* and the Monkees and so many other shows. The uh, making of uh, the story of how this show came about, and—and and look, you had these movies that came out last year on Alfred Hitchcock: the making of *The Birds* and the making of *Psycho*. They weren't documentaries; they were you know feature films with Anthony Hopkins playing Hitchcock and so forth. So that's what we're going for with. Um, this idea of the miniseries is that uh, uh, we show these talented people coming together to make this amazing show that was about the times, but also influenced the times.
0: Yeah, I would love to see something you know like that. I think there are, there's a huge a- appeal for that. I'd love to see like some actor playing a young Gene Roddenberry, you know, trying to go into these studios and get this get this uh, series on the air. Some of the early days of, you know, writing the stories and then putting together the cast and just, you know, it, it, it would be, uh, that'd be fantastic. Uh, well, any last thoughts? I want I also mention, Mark, where people can pick these up, your websites, all that good information. Why don't you tell everybody about that? Well, the
1: then... books are, of course, available on Amazon. Uh, the first books at Barnes & Noble, you can get that on barnesandnoble.com. But the best place to get these books... Uh, is directly from the publisher, and they've created... It's Jacobs Brown Multimedia Group, but do, don't try to remember that. That's too many words. Uh, they created a special website that's just called thesearethevoyagesbooks.com.
0: Okay, I'll definitely link that. And if you go there, that.
1: you can read excerpts from the books, you can see picture galleries, you can, you can read the reviews, you can read what Leonard Nimoy says about the books, and Walter Koenig, and all the others, and some of these reviews uh, that have come out. But you can also buy the books there for the same price as they are at amazon except they're autographed so it's the oh, only place to get uh, autographed books and the first one isn't just signed by me um and i always feel weird saying this because i it's like who cares <laughs> i don't <laughs> care but but i know to have a book signed by the author means something to some people so yes i sign it okay other than that, it's just me. Who cares? Uh, but but here's what I care about. The first one is also signed by John D.F. Black, because he wrote the foreword. And and John, besides writing The Naked Time and then doing the final sh- scripts for Miri and um, uh, Mud's Women, uh, John was the one who came up with the line Space, The Final Frontier. Gene was having trouble getting started, so John started that for him, and they kind of went back and forth.
0: Yeah, Gene would write a so line. John, yeah.
1: John would write a line. So here's the guy who wrote the words Space, the Final Frontier. Um, Hugo-nominated writer, Edgar Allan Poe, award-winning writer. He also wrote Shaft, the first movie, on and on and on. Uh, he he's signed these books. So you want to get his autograph, uh, you can get it from at thesearethevoyagesbooks.com.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's been so much fun talking to you. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll be able to do this again after book three comes out, you know, a little brief, uh, a little more briefly that time, just to let everyone know when it comes. You said in the fall, like about September or so, or is it? Uh... Uh, you
1: know, the, tentatively November 1st. But it may come out a little quicker than that. It may come out like mid-October, but okay. it would be, yeah, it would be later, later fall. In time for Christmas,
0: certainly a couple months before Christmas. Well, Mark uh, are, you it, kid-
1: are you kidding you and me talk more briefly how are
0: we going to do that <laughs> You're right about that I mean you know I I'm obviously you know I I the original series Star Trek it it means a lot to me uh, it was uh you know th- something that uh, I grew up on something that I still enjoy to this day and you know I I've just uh, can't say enough good things about it and try to get other people you know I I've uh, it's funny that I've, uh, in doing the podcast over the years, I, I've occasionally I'll run into people who started to watch Star Trek with Next Generation or Deep Space Nine or Voyager or Enterprise, and you know, eventually I get them around to going back and watching the where it, where it all began, and, and and almost you know without you know question or without any exceptions, they go, wow, you know, I know there's styrofoam rocks and the these guys, you know, sometimes the toupee doesn't quite look right. But these are good stories, you know. They always yeah. say, "Boy, these are, you know, like they're just they're just timeless." And uh, it, it's just uh, it's just great to be able to go back and, and look at how this all came together.
1: Isn't it fun also reading uh, about where the stories came from? He- hearing the writers or Roddenberry or whoever saying this this is why we did this particular story. Yeah, that 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 see, because I'm a writer, so I'm I'm very interested in that type of stuff, but. Obviously, the books also are about the productions and the ratings and the letters and the reviews and everything else that was happening around there. But I, but I love hearing the origin of these stories. I can't wait for you to read book three so you can find out the origin of the story for Spock's brain.
0: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and if
1: you, if you want to say, what were they thinking? Well, it's kind of interesting. I can't wait, rate, wait to read that, that
0: one, and I can't re- wait to read the one on the way to Eden, too, both of them. <laughs> and, uh, and even the last one, Turnabout Intruder with, uh, you know, no women captains. I mean, like, you know, probably, yeah. probably that the, maybe the episode that sticks out like a sore thumb a little bit on, on Star Trek's record there that, you know, what, what, where was that coming from? So, uh, but we'll it's leave. Interesting to, yeah.
1: It's interesting to find out. And, you know, that doesn't excuse it, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean you know, we can say why the alternative factor didn't work or why. And the children shall lead doesn't quite work, or or way to Eden, um, but uh, or Spock's brain, which from a production point of view is a good looking episode, but the the story and especially the last part of that that story, so you you know, but you still want to know, you want to or I do anyway. Yeah. I, I want to know, but what, what? Come on, that was written by Gene Kuhn, one of their best writers and former producer. So Gene, uh, you know, how could you do the Devil in the Dark and Arena? And metamorphoses, and then you turned around and did Spock's brain.
0: What what was going on in your head? What happened to your brain? Like, brain in brain. What yeah, is yeah, brain? Yeah, yeah.
1: What happened to your brain? And and but you know what? Think when you find out, and when you read about it, and you're going to go, okay, I get it. That's valid. Uh, it just didn't work. Yeah. You know, sometimes it doesn't work. But they never approached an episode without a validity as far as what they were trying to say, what they were trying to accomplish. Trying to do something a little different than last week, but trying to make a point and trying to take some big headline out of the newspaper. So it, it was always, they never got lazy, but sometimes it just doesn't come together. Yep. But you know what? Here's here's the thing. If, if you don't take chances, if you say, okay, Arena worked, so you know what? We're going to do Arena every week. Every week we're going to have the Enterprise chasing another ship and and Kirk's going to have to go down to the planet and fight the monster. Uh, you know, it gets pretty boring.
0: Yeah, well, that's so, what's great about the series, you know, is that, uh, you know, especially the original series, I think, it, it it just, every episode was was something new and unique. They were all, you know, pulling something out new each time, you know, so it's yeah. uh,
1: And in doing that, you're taking the chance that occasionally you're going to fall on your face.
0: Yep. You can't, you know? uh, so, there's a phrase or a quote, isn't there something like, you know, big risks or something, you know, you can't uh, win big or, or, or something like that. I don't know what, what it is, but... Let's go big or go home i think is what i'm trying to say <laughs>
1: <laughs> so god bless them for trying you yep. know there's a couple twilight zones out there that just don't work during the marathons it's like oh god well, not this one yeah every this series has got it you know you've got
0: to have but great you know to have great great stuff you got to have some bad stuff too it, yeah. it's just the way that that thing goes so uh yeah,
1: you got to you got to take a chance and you got to you got to gamble and and look at 90% of the time the dice came up right for them definitely so, that's a pretty good track record
0: just hang on the line for a minute mark but i'm going to sign us off here and i I just want to thank uh author mark cushman for being with me today on this great conversation talking about uh his two volumes soon to be three volumes of these are the voyages basically the the making of in, in, in in inordinate and amazing and Time, sta- you know, just I, I, <laughs> I, I just, uh, you know, my hat is off to you about all the research that went into this because it's, uh, it's really fascinating, great stuff for for fans like myself. So thanks very thank much, you. Mark. You betcha. it's been
1: fun. Transfer of data is complete.
0: Well, folks, I want to thank again uh, Mark Cushman for taking time uh, to do this interview uh, with me and talk about his amazing books. These are the Voyages. Uh, for TOS, you know, if you're a fan of Trek, if you're a fan of how it all started, how the episodes were put together, these books are are a must buy. I can't recommend them enough. So much research, so much great content, so many great pictures and, and references. The uh, place to go for these again, I'll put links in the podcast notes for this week. But go over to TheseAreTheVoyagesBooks.com. They also have a Facebook uh, group or page uh, over at Facebook.com. Slash, these are the voyages. And again, I'll link all that in the podcast notes. So thanks, Mark, again. Uh, I hope to talk to you again, maybe after uh, the third season book comes out. Uh, next weekend on Treks and Sci-Fi, I'll be covering the annual Motor City Comic Con that I've been going to for a number of years. I'm going to do a vidcast, probably on my new Mac, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, actually, uh, in podcasting land, uh, I'm recording this the day after I went to. Uh, the uh comic con and had a good time and my, actually my younger son eric went with me so that was a treat and uh i'll be covering that next weekend on the show so i'm going to get out of here and wrap this up uh, again as always if you need any information about the show go over to treksinscifi.com and everything can be found there so i'll talk to you again soon bye bye this has been a rick Doste production